Hello. Welcome to a new episode of a Flatpak History of Sweden. It's episode 15, Igor, a Viking ruler in Kiev. Yes, we're going to be focusing almost this entire episode on Igor and his life as he finishes off the Rurik dynasty, at least for a while in our story. I think it makes sense to do a recap after the Swedish phrase, just so we keep it all in one big narrative rather than splitting it up a tiny bit. So should we start with the phrase? Nice short phrase. I know we've done longer and more complicated ones in the last couple of episodes, so this is a nice short one. Kärt barn har många namn. It translates to English as a dear or a beloved child has many names. It's sort of used for when you can call the same thing many different things. Say uh, your boss comes in and tells you, uh, due to uh, recent cutbacks in the company, we will need to make you redundant. And that's a nice way of saying you've been sacked, but it means the same thing. So, Kärt barn har många namn, a beloved child ironically in that example has many names can be called many things cool that's that's an interesting one uh yeah i'd say quite often used in sweden today you'll hear it quite a lot in modern swedish yeah very good right so on with the story of igor yes and with a brief recap of what happened last time yeah so In the last episode, we spoke about how the Rus really began to become a thing in the area of Russia and Ukraine. And we talked about Rurik, his journey of starting this dynasty, who was probably a Swede, and he came to take control of the area around Ladoga and Novgorod in what is now northwestern Russia. Rurik consolidated his power in this area whilst two fellow Rus called Askold and Deir ventured much further south and took control of Kiev from which they launched raids on Constantinople. Yeah, and we also talked about the first Byzantine attempts to Christianize some of the Rus. Uh, that happened in the 860s but didn't last too long as Askold and Deir were removed from power by the pagan Oleg, a relative of Rurik. Uh, remember the Lion King moment as he held up Rurik's son, Igor, to like lure Askold and Deir out of the city? Oh yeah, what a moment. I definitely won't forget that. Um, questionable parenting methods. <laughs> definitely. Uh, <laughs> But at least from that moment, Oleg had control all the way down to Kiev as well. So he was the first real ruler of this bigger Rus entity. He got this because Rurik had died and left him his realm as a sort of caretaker until Igor was old enough to rule because he was still this little baby, really. Yeah. Oleg ruled over this Rus kingdom or fiefdom for a fair amount of time for about 30 years or so before launching his major raid on Constantinople in the year 907. This was the attack where the Vikings even managed to put wheels on their boats to avoid Constantinople's formidable sea defences and it led to two peace and trading treaties between the Rus and the Byzantines. That was what we looked into quite a lot of detail last time thanks to the primary chronicle relating the whole text really it seems. These clauses focused on trade and how the Vikings could come to Constantinople and how long they were allowed to stay there and what they could buy and sell and how the two groups would also deal with things like crime, slaves and shipwrecks. So it sort of had everything, really. Sadly, Oleg only lives a short while after the peace treaty of 9-11 and actually dies a rather dramatic death in 9-12. This was where we finished last week and we will continue with the rest of Igor's life now that he has come to power. But before we start on Igor's rule, I think we should definitely relate what the primary chronicle, this great Russian history text, has to say about Oleg's death, because it is a fascinating story involving prophecies and the Viking belief system. Yeah, I think we should just read it all out from the Primary Chronicle, because it's not too long, and it's also very fun. So, it begins with, 
On one occasion, Oleg had made inquiry of the wonder-working magicians as to the ultimate cause of his death. One magician replied, O prince, it is from the horse which you love and on which you ride that you shall meet your death. Oleg then reflected and determined never to mount this horse or even to look upon it again. So he gave command that the horse should be properly fed, but never led into his presence. He thus let several years pass until he had attacked the Greeks. After he returned to Kiev, four years elapsed, but in the fifth, he thought of the horse through which the magicians had foretold that he should meet his death. He thus summoned his senior squire and inquired as to the whereabouts of the horse. The squire answered that he was dead. Oleg laughed and mocked the magician, exclaiming, Soothsayers telleth untruths, and their words are nothing but falsehood. This horse is dead, but I am alive. Then he commanded that a horse should be saddled. Let me see his bones, he said. He rode to the place where the bare bones and skull lay. Dismounting from his horse, he laughed and remarked, So I was supposed to receive my death from this skull. And he stamped upon the skull with his foot. But a snake crawled out from it and bit him in the foot, so that, in consequence, he sickened and died. Yeah, I mean, laughing at someone's death is probably a bit poor taste, but that is quite amusing in how he just says, Ah, silly horse, you can't kill me. And then he, when he stamps on the skull, the snake comes out and bites him. It's the ultimate burn. Yeah. Or bite. Bite, yeah. But it's quite dramatic, and it actually reminds me a bit of Julius Caesar being told on the Ides of March that he would die. And then he saw the same soothsayer during the Ides of March, and he said, look, the Ides of March have come, being like, you know, I'm still alive, haha, you got it wrong. But then the soothsayer's like, yes, Caesar, but they have not gone. And that's the same thing, really, with this. The horse is going to kill you. It might be dead, but the horse is still going to play its part. Silly Oleg, smashing a horse's skull will never help you. Like, just leave that alone. It is interesting to see these soothsayers or magicians working around the prince here. We'll look more into this when we do an episode or a part of an episode on Viking religion and myths and the belief systems, but this is definitely typical of the sort of stories we will end up hearing more and more. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting how stuff comes up in this passage about Oleg saying, ah, you always tell us untruths and your words are nothing but falsehood, but then they come true anyway. So I think, yeah, it'll be really interesting to look later on in the podcast about how these things play together. Yeah, for sure. And they're important aspects of people's lives. Exactly. But we're now continue with Igor's life because he's now in charge, finally. His caretaker relative, it doesn't actually say exactly what Oleg is to him, but yep, his caretaker relative is dead, and he's now around 30 years old by the time of 912, if you believe the chronology, which, like always, is a bit iffy for this time period. Some historians even believe that it's a bit suspicious that Oleg and Igor both rule for really long periods, up to sort of 70 years once you combine them. So there is a, a bit of talk that someone else in the last 20 years where there's nothing in the primary chronicle it just there's a huge gap some people have suspected that the original oleg was in power then and the one who ends up dying with the snake might be a different oleg or something or they could have just both ruled until they were 70 for a long time but that is a bit suspicious so yeah we'll just have to see Constantine Zuckerman is one of these historians who argues that Igor actually only reigned for about three years between the summer of 941 and his death in early 945, and he didn't actually succeed Oleg in 912. He thinks that this huge reign that we're about to talk about is because the Primary Chronicle doesn't understand some of the Byzantine sources from earlier, but it's not too important because the story pretty much does revolve around these three years in the later period. So we are going to skip a huge period of time after just really getting to know Igor. But let's just yeah keep that as something to think about. Yeah, the Primary Chronicle is pretty silent on what happens during all those years. There is a mention of a local tribe called the Derevlians revolting against Igor right at the start of his rule in 913 and 914. It says, 
Igor attacked the Derevlians, and after conquering them, he imposed upon them a tribute larger than Oleg's. Remember these Derevlians, keep them in mind, because they appear much later in the story with quite dramatic consequences. But for now, that is all we get up until the 940s. Yeah, so we have literally a sentence and then we skip 30 years. So I don't know what Igor was doing in that time. Probably just, you know... I don't know, baking a cake. Baking a really long cake and maybe... Arranging some flowers. Yeah, building up Kiev. But anyway, the Primary Chronicle is not interested in this period at all because nothing happens. We get to the 940s where there's a big campaign against the Byzantines again. At this point, they've got a new emperor called Romanos. All right, so we're getting ready for more war here. Exactly. So this is in 941, and Igor decides, potentially right at the beginning of his reign, or after 30 years, depending on which timeline we want to go with, that it's now time for war against the Byzantines once more. And the treaties that Oleg had put into place 35 years before, now not worth it, it's time to attack again. So the Rus get together with their allies, one of them a tribe called the Pekenegs, and they attacked the Byzantines in May 941 with Igor in command. They landed on the northern coast of Bithynia, which is the other side of the water from Constantinople, so sort of on the Asian continent side of modern-day Turkey. They seem to have known that Constantinople was again defenceless, just like last time when the army and the navy were away. This time, the navy was once again attacking the caliphate throughout the Mediterranean, and the main Byzantine army was in the east again, but this time getting ready to defend against a possible caliphate invasion. There is a definite pattern here. I mean... Every time, Byzantine guys, every time you're away fighting the caliphate, the Rus are going to attack Constantinople. Yeah, I mean, Vikings are bad enough, but surprise Vikings when you're not ready for them is probably even worse. Yeah, the Rus, as would be expected, set about terrorizing the Byzantine lands. Uh, the Chronicle writes that they waged war along the Pontus as far as Heraclea and Paphlagonia, and laid waste the entire region of Nicomedia, burning everything along the Gulf. Of the people they captured, some they butchered, others they set up as targets and shot at, some they seized upon, and after binding their hands behind their backs, they drove iron nails through their heads. Many sacred churches they gave to the flames, while they burned many monasteries and villages, and took no little booty on both sides of the sea. It, it's, again, it's very dramatic, very violent. These Byzantines are definitely not having the best of time against the Rus. No, people getting nails put in their heads and being God. used as target practice. I mean, I don't know why you can't just use a tree. When I hear tales like this, which we will see repeated throughout history, I question people who say, oh, I miss the good old days. These were the good old days. People had nails in their heads. Don't want to go back necessarily in history. No, I think that's probably fair. And this is all happening because the Byzantine army is away. They couldn't stop them. So this goes on for quite a while. It's the next part that the chronologies come a bit confused. The Primary Chronicle has things in a different order to the Byzantine historians. It effectively means the same thing, so we'll just pick one of them, really. As we mentioned, the emperor at this point is a man called Romanus, and he was the first Romanus, and he was actually previously a navy admiral, and at this time he was being co-emperor, which the Byzantines like to do throughout their period. They like to have people sharing the throne. He was co-emperor with Constantine the Seventh, uh, the guy who wrote the history of Basil in the last episode. Now, a bit like last time again, Romanus had left the defence of the city to his chief advisor, a man called Theophanes. On seeing the Rus head down south, Theophanes apparently found about 15 old and rickety rubbish ships just lying in one of the docks in Constantinople. They'd been there for a while, sort of abandoned, maybe going to be used for scrap wood or something, but just sitting there not really doing anything, definitely not part of the navy. So he ordered his men to 
fit them out and get them ready to sail again. And they set them up with weapons and defences. He sent them out to guard the small seaward approach through the Bosphorus Mm -hmm. towards Constantinople. To the Rus, these ships looked defenceless, but they actually had Greek fire on board. I've been wondering about this ever since I read about this. They're effectively like flamethrowers, right? Yeah, so it's sort of like napalm. It's fire. And they originally first had them in sort of almost like grenades. They would put them in pots and throw them at the enemy and it would just catch fire and set fire to things. But crucially, it would burn on water. So if you see sort of like oil spills today that catch fire, the oil lays on the top of the sea and can catch fire. So even if you fell in the sea to try and escape, you're sort of swimming through fire. Oh my gosh. Um, Unfortunately, nobody knows the recipe for this because we don't know how to recreate it. But Maybe that's just as well. Yeah, exactly. But it was definitely the Byzantines' absolute top secret special weapon that they would bring out in times of absolute dread. But by this point, they'd also worked how to sort of shoot it out of a of a pipe. So exactly like what you would imagine a modern day flamethrower, a guy would stand there with a hose and spray fire oh. against the enemies, which is... Pretty Which crazy is a, stuff to imagine. Yeah, it's a thousand years earlier than, you know, real frame throwers being used in sort of the Second World War and things. But it's, yeah, it's unbelievably impressive from a scientific point of view. Yeah, and obviously unbelievably dangerous and lethal. But Igor wanted to try and capture these Byzantine ships, so ordered his boats to surround them. Then, all at once, the Byzantine ships opened fire with these flamethrowers and will let the primary chronicle take over and explain what happened. It's not good. Theophanes pursued them in boats with Greek fire and dropped it through pipes upon the Russian ships so that a strange miracle was offered to view. Upon seeing the flames, the Rus cast themselves into the seawater, being anxious to escape but the survivors returned home. When they came once more to their native land, where each one recounted to his kinsfolk the course of events and described the fire launched from the ships, they related that the Greeks had in their possession the lightning from heaven and had set them on fire by pouring it forth so the Rus could not conquer them. So that's pretty dramatic. An Italian diplomat a few years later wrote down that The Rus, seeing the flames, jumped overboard, preferring water to fire. Some sank, weighed down by the weight of their breastplates and helmets, whereas others caught fire. Oh my god, that is awful. The Byzantine sources then mention that the Byzantine generals in the east return to the capital to make sure that the Rus leave properly. They say that the Rus were then defeated in another surprise flamethrower attack on the sea as Theophanes took charge of the entire navy to annihilate the Rus. Any survivors were taken back to Constantinople where they were beheaded. They're destroyed, and that's pretty pretty grim, really. They've been attacked twice, or potentially just once, by these flamethrower naval ships that Theophanes has had built. So that's pretty... Yeah, but they also put nails through people's heads. So, yeah. I mean, I don't really know who was worse here. No, I don't think anybody wins in the nicest neighbor competition. No. Whichever way you read the sources, the Rus were utterly destroyed by a Greek fire attack on sea once or perhaps twice. And there were very few survivors who managed to make it all the way back to Kiev. Some sources, including Leo the Deacon, a Byzantine chronicler, he says that only 10 ships returned back to Kiev, which isn't much considering that they apparently attacked with 200 or so. Yeah, 200 seems to be the number of ships they seem to be attacking with. Yeah, that number keeps coming up when you read about attacks. So that's 5% of the ships that have survived then, if we take the 10 ships surviving and returning home. Heavy losses. Yeah. You can imagine that Igor wasn't too happy about all of that. In fact, the Primary Chronicle says that he spends the next few months writing letters to all of the tribes and other Vikings living in the area, inviting them to come on a revenge mission to Constantinople. 
to give the Byzantines a taste of their own medicine for once and attack them back. Although, to be fair, they attacked first. Yeah, but revenge for the defeat. Yeah, and revenge he gets in 944, so just a few years later, he thinks he can get his revenge, and this is what the Primary Chronicle says. After collecting many warriors among the Varangians, the Rus, the Polonaeans, the Slavs, the Kravitians, the Tverichians, and the Pekanegs, and receiving hostages from them, Igor advanced upon the Greeks by ship and by horse, thirsting for revenge. However, the Bulgars and another tribe nearby warned the Byzantine emperor that the Rus were on their way and that their ships covered the sea, as there were so many of them. So the Byzantine emperor gets a bit of a heads up here, and he decides that he would try and offer Igor the same amount that the previous emperors had offered Oleg. So a lot of gold and silk, but also add a little bit more as an incentive. Yeah, so the Chronicle describes how Igor's sitting there thinking, hmm, is this worth enough money? I could just try and get more, but also my soldiers might die. He's weighing up this imaginary gold in his hands and deciding what to do, and eventually he decides it's probably best if he takes this money and stops his attack. One group, the Pekenegs, didn't really like this idea, so they wanted much more booty and more fun. So they decided to raid the Bulgarian coast. So the Bulgars weren't very happy with that happening, but the Rus weren't tempted to join in and went back home. Now, in either the end of 944 or in 945, possibly stretching over both years, the two groups decided to negotiate yet another trade and peace treaty. The Byzantines sent envoys to Igor to discuss general terms, which would be concluded by Rus envoys going to speak with the emperor in Constantinople. Luckily, once again, we get the names of the individual Rus, just like we got in the last episode with that treaty. This time, there are 50 envoys and merchants named, it is interesting that 25 of them are explicitly called merchants, and a lot of the ambassadors are named as ambassador for specific Rus figures. So, for example, we get Ivar, envoy of Igor, great prince of Rus, Vefast, representing Svatoslav, son of Igor, Isagout, for the princess Olga, Shlotti for Igor, nephew of Igor, Oleif for Vladislav, Kanitsar for Predslava, and Sigbjörn for Svanhild, wife of Oleif. Just like last time, these names are really interesting, but for a, a different reason than the previous treaty, because there's noticeable differences. And we won't bore you by reading out 50 names because they are quite long. But the first thing to note is that Igor's son is mentioned, and he's the first ruler of these Rus to not have a Viking name, so Svatoslav. From this point, all the leaders of the Rus have these Slavic names. So that's why Igor's rule is sometimes used as being like the bookend for this period to say that from this point, the Rus are more Slavic than Viking because even their leaders now have Slavic names. That's a simple way to look at how the cultures are assimilating each other and learning different practices from each other and, and becoming their own new sort of combined people. Yeah, and that's the reason that why after Igor leaves the scene in this area, so will we. We will return in the next couple of episodes back to Sweden proper because these, this offshoot of Swedish Vikings in the East have now gotten to the point where they are so assimilated that they've taken on their own identity and isn't really a part of Swedish history anymore. But that list of names with the mix of very Swedish or Scandinavian names like Sigbjörn and Svanhild with very Slavic names like Chris mentioned, Igor's son, uh, Svitoslav. Exactly. Vladislav, Kantazar or Predslava don't really sound very Swedish to me. 
that's something else that's interesting is the fact that at least two, probably three women are mentioned here, which is really cool. The first is Olga, the wife of Igor. In fact, we will come back in a few episodes time after we've gone back to Sweden. We will come back and look at her in more detail as an example of a really powerful woman in this time period. She was born 200 kilometers west of Novgorod, near the Estonian border in modern day terms. And she becomes this really amazing figure that we'll look at in more detail. The other women represented is a wife of another envoy. And then also this Predslava sounds like um, she's another important woman. So this shows you that these women had enough influence back home in Kiev that they were to be personally represented on a diplomatic mission of this nature. They're powerful enough to have their own part in this process. Yeah, like Chris was saying, we will be continuing on with Olga's story as an example of a powerful woman during this time period, because after we leave Igor, she acts as regent for nearly 20 years until their son, Svetoslav, is old enough to take the throne of the Kiev Rus. So she will come back uh, in a few episodes' time. But she's so cool, she's going to get her own episode. We'll look forward to telling you all about her later on. But going back to these names, we definitely can see that it's less overwhelmingly Scandinavian. In fact, Philip Parker says that this means that the creep of Slavicization had clearly reached the Kievan elite. And that certainly looks to be the case, at least by the names. But going back to the treaty, the Rus had clearly pushed their luck one raid too many, actually, because the Byzantines are actually watering down the benefits of the Rus when they're coming to visit to trade compared to the last treaty mm. that Oleg managed to get. Rus traders aren't allowed to stay in Constantinople over winter anymore and their boats can't stay either. And this is probably because the emperors had seen that Vikings staying over winter was the first step towards conquest and settlement as this had been happening throughout England and France and northern Germany. So probably didn't want the eastern vikings getting the same idea no it's it's absolutely best to keep the eastern vikings at bay it seems the byzantines are thinking and also maybe it's just been one nail in the head too many by this point uh, there's another restriction too this time about trade the chronicle says when the Rus enter the city, they shall not have the right to buy silk above the value of 50 bezants. Whosoever purchases such silk shall exhibit them to the imperial officer, who will stamp and return them. When the Rus depart hence, they shall receive from us as many provisions as they require for the journey, and what they need for their ships, as has been previously determined, and they shall return home in safety. They shall not have the privilege of wintering in the St. Mamas quarters. Now, this is really interesting because it says that they don't have the right to buy silk above the value of 50 bezants. And a bezant is a sort of a general term used in this period for any gold coins. But some historians presume that this is probably a reference to the gold solidus, which is Constantinople's largest value coin. So they're not allowed to buy more than 50 gold coins worth of silk. Angeliki Lao in the Economic History of Byzantium has calculated that this amount of money would probably be enough to buy about eight slaves from Constantinople at this time. So whilst that is a lot of silk, it also isn't a huge outrageous amount of money. It's sort of a middle compromise amount of money that they're allowed to spend. And I love the fact that the Rus also have to get some sort of stamp receipt from a Byzantine official that's following them around. That's very modern day. It's like, receipt, please, stamping everything. Bureaucracy is nothing new. No, absolutely not. Um, they So they can't just walk off with some of the stuff that they bought, but also to prove that they're not buying too much. There's also that line that they're not allowed to stay over winter at the St. Mamas quarters that they've been using since Oleg's treaty. So they're having a lot of these restrictions placed on them. And in fact, even says that in another section of the treaty that any traders coming to Constantinople needed to bring certificates from Igor, where Igor would have to write down before they left exactly how many ships were coming to Constantinople 
so some random sneaky Rus couldn't join the trip halfway after they departed Kiev. That's a bit of a sneaky way of the emperor limiting the exact amount of Rus who come in at any one time. Yeah, they really are trying to place limits on this. Uh, going back briefly to the part of overwintering, this is very interesting as it links into another source one actually written personally by one of the Byzantine emperors of the time, Constantine VII. Constantine was very keen to pass on all his knowledge to future emperors, so he wrote a long book called On the Administration of the Empire, and a few sections deals with the custom of the Rus. Yeah, so this is a sort of an idiot's guide to being an emperor. <laughs> He talks particularly about how, when the ice thaws, they sail south through the rapids of the Dnieper River, even telling us the names the Rus gave to these various rapids. One was called Esopi, which means in Russian and Slavic, do not sleep. That's Constantine giving us the translation. So he says that's what the Rus and the Slavs called it. Yeah. But do not sleep. That That's a pretty crazy name for a place. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a pretty intense rapid to go over. The do not sleep probably means that, you know, if you do sleep and you're on this bit of the river, you will capsize and die. <laughs> um, so Constantine also mentions about how the Rus hollowed out their boats from a single tree trunk in the winter months to help them prepare for the times when the rivers thawed. Now, especially as they weren't able to spend the winters down in Constantinople, they might as well use that time wisely. Yeah. Fascinatingly, he mentions that some sections of the river were so dangerous that you could only travel them in June when it was nice and high water levels and safe. But even in June, the Rus needed to unload all of their cargo and get the slaves to carry the cargo on land whilst the expert Rus sailors concentrated on the sailing without having to worry about if some silk falls overboard or something like that. And even then, sometimes it wasn't safe enough then, so they had to take the whole boat out and carry that along the riverbanks too. So it definitely wasn't all fun and games with these sailing down to Constantinople. No, absolutely not. And this is what the Byzantine emperor is forcing them to do more often now by not letting them stay in Constantinople over winter. So it definitely isn't as equal a treaty as the one from 30 years previously. And, of course, what could happen when the Rus carry their boats and goods over land instead of sea? They get attacked. Yes, and that's actually how Igor's son, Svetosav, is killed in the 970s. He's killed when carrying his boats on land. Uh, that isn't really a spoiler, as we won't go into his story, but... Just an interesting fact to know. Yeah, and it shows you how dangerous this would have been because if you're busy carrying boats and stuff, you can't really defend yourself very well if some other tribe comes running up to you on their horses and starts stabbing you. <laughs> yeah, but going back to the treaty, it ends in an interesting and telling way. First, it says that the treaty will have been written down in two parts, with each leader keeping a copy to refer back to, so... It's very handy to have a receipt. But the next part is really interesting when we look at this whole issue of the spread of Christianity amongst the Rus. Uh, we saw that Oleg in the 880s killed Asgold and Dia, perhaps because they were Christian, and returned the Rus elite to paganism. But this next section shows that in the subsequent 60 years, things had changed somewhat. The Primary Chronicle at this point is talking about how the two groups can guarantee that they will stick to the treaty terms. And so it says about the Rus, Those of us who are baptised have sworn in the cathedral by the church of St. Elias, upon the holy cross sent before us, 
and upon this parchment to abide by all that is written herein, and not to violate any of its stipulations. May whosoever of our compatriots, prince or common, baptized or unbaptized, who does so violate them, have no succor from God, but may he be slave in this life and in the life to come, and may he perish by his own arms. The unbaptized roos shall lay down their shields, their naked swords, their armlets, and their other weapons, and shall swear to all that is inscribed upon this parchment to be faithfully observed for ever by Igor and all the people from the land of Rus. If any of the princes or any Rus subject, whether Christian or non-Christian, violates the terms of this agreement, he shall merit death by his own weapons and be accursed of God and of Perun because he violated his oath. Well, that is very interesting that there are sort of two versions of this. Yeah, so you can see that the treaty has specific oaths for the Christian Ruse and a different one for the non-Christian Ruse. So there must have been at least enough significant numbers of the Rus that had been Christianized by this point, at least in just the elite, for them to have been included in the treaty because the Byzantine envoys wouldn't want them to take an oath that they didn't care about. So it's making them swear their own oath for the individual circumstances. Yeah, we know that Igor was still pagan, however, and when the Byzantine envoys come to Kiev with the final version of the treaty... Igor goes to a hill with a statue of the god Perun, where he swore the treaty's oath, along with his fellow pagans, whilst the Christian Rus took their oath in the church of Elias, which was apparently, quote, above the creek in the vicinity of the Pasinka Square. Sounds like a very nice place. Yeah, I'm sure Pasinka Square has a nice vibe to it Mm -hmm. in summer. However, just like his predecessor, Oleg, Igor doesn't really have any real time to celebrate the glory of this treaty and having achieved the benefits of getting a relatively decent diplomatic treaty with the Byzantines. Because in 945, the very same year that the treaty is finally signed, he is killed. Igor is dead. What drama! Now, this is when we return to the Derevlians. Remember them from, from earlier in the episode? Yeah, where he tried to attack them and get more money from them than Oleg did before. Good, because after the treaty is signed, Igor's court start pestering him uh, that the Derevlians have a lot of gold, but the Rus have none, and he should attack them again to take tribute from them. Igor agrees and heads there immediately. However, he seems to be a bit greedy, as the Chronicle says... He sought to increase the previous tribute and collected by violence from the people with the assistance of his followers. Oh dear, never try and ask for too much for someone, especially when you're trying to effectively rob them. No, I I think this is, the ruse is in general having a bit of uh, an issue with asking too much uh, during this period. But it gets worse for Igor. On the way home, he decides he should actually go back and get even more money and tribute from the Derevlians. Yeah, so he's already got more than Oleg, and now he's going back again to get more. Uh, Don't get greedy. So Igor sends half of his men back to Kiev with the gold that they already got, but rides back to try and get even more from the Derevlians. The prince of the Derevlians is a guy called Mel, and he has the best quote, which sounds a lot like these fables you learned in school. He says, If a wolf come among the sheep, he will take away the whole flock one by one, unless he be killed. If we do not thus kill him now, he will destroy us all. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a fable um, with the whole, you know, we've got to stick together, otherwise he'll pick us off. And unfortunately for Igor, this really is a reality, because on returning to the town, once the Derevlians found out he wanted more tribute, they weren't very happy with that. And sadly, because only half of his men had returned with him, Igor was vulnerable, and the Derevlians just killed him and all of his men. 
not very good. No, that's that's it for Igor. Yeah, and that's it for potentially the last prince of the Rus who was more Swedish than he was Slavic. The Byzantine chronicler we mentioned briefly earlier, Leo the Deacon, that he describes that Igor died in a horrible way. He says that they had bent down two birch trees to the prince's feet and tied them to his legs. Then they let the trees straighten again, thus tearing the prince's body apart. Oh my gosh. Whoa, that is, I mean, a very Viking-style death. Yeah, ripping someone in half. Kill death by tree. Yeah. I don't think we can really go into much more of a deeper analysis of Igor here as it is very similar to Oleg and Rurik just has a little less detail. Yeah so it's a very similar story of this prince of the Rus going to see the Byzantines conducting a treaty but then getting killed from being a bit greedy which it happens seems to happen to almost all of them really. Yeah but with Igor we shall round off this long story of Viking rule in the east Igor is due to be followed by his son, Svetoslav, but Svetoslav is quite young at this point, so Igor's wife, Olga, that we already mentioned, has this fascinating regency. She takes charge and goes into an action-packed campaign of revenge against the Derevlians. She then ruled for around 15 years until her son comes to age. Which is fascinating that this is the first major female character and she doesn't just start off with, oh, six months of doing stuff. She just appears and bang, 15 years of being the regent, which is amazing. Yeah, so we definitely don't have time to go into August Regency with all its action right now. There are so many amazing stories we could tell about her and she is our first proper female political figure so we want to do her justice so we will return to her in a few episodes time after we have done a proper sort of contextual episode on women in the viking age yeah, that makes sense. So we can start looking at her with a bit of understanding around the general themes of being a woman in the Viking Age and what makes her so special. Yeah, but uh, keep her in mind because she will come back. Yeah, exactly. And so looking back, we can see that the rule of Igor and the regency of Olga are the last time that someone we can pretty much say that were probably more Scandinavian than Rus were in charge of the Rus from Kiev. But after Olga hands over power, we've reached Svetoslav and his very Slavic name, and so we'll leave the Rus there. He does have a pretty action-packed life, just like all of his predecessors, <laughs> but I think the, the naming style has led to a lot of historians calling this the beginning of the end of the Scandinavian influence in the area. Some people definitely do continue the story and there's a lot more information out there if you'd want to read more about Svatoslav and the Kiev people after we leave them. Philip Parker's book we've mentioned a few times now, The Northmen's Fury, goes into this a little bit more, as well as Magnus Magnusson's very accessible book, The Vikings, as well. Yeah, so definitely uh, more resources if you want to continue that trajectory of history. But... Looking back, what have we seen over the last few episodes in regards to the Rus? And exactly how Scandinavian were they? Well, it appears that some Swedish and other Viking traders and explorers helped build up settlements in Ladoga in the 750s, with the amount of influence increasing throughout the 800s. The Rus were then interesting and influential enough to help the Byzantine emperor with his diplomacy by traveling on a mission to Louis the Pious back in the West. And by the time we reach the 860s, there are very Viking-sounding leaders like Rurik and Askold and Deer, establishing towns like Novgorod and taking over places like Kiev. These Viking leaders then initiated raids on Constantinople with the peace treaties, naming envoys who were very Scandinavian in the early 900s. This helped boost trade 
all the way back to places like Birka in Sweden proper, as Arabic coins and fancy silk start appearing in large quantities back in the homeland of the Vikings. However, when we start getting into the second or third generation of these rulers, like we've seen today, the local Slavic cultures are definitely gaining influence on these elites. So that by the time we get to the next major negotiations that we looked at this week, the Slavic-sounding envoys are just as prominent in their embassy to the Byzantines in the 940s. There are still some Scandinavian names present, so it's a 50-50 a split almost. There's lots of up and downs in relation to Christianity in this point that we've seen with lots of people briefly becoming Christian, then going back to being all pagan and then coming back a little bit to Christianity in this episode. By the time we've reached the downfall of Igor and the regency of Olga, we're approaching a time when the Slavic people's influences are perhaps greater than the Scandinavians. Olga hands over power to her son, Svetoslav, who will actually go on to lead a very battly Viking-style life. But his name and other aspects of his rule imply that the Slavic culture is now in the ascendancy. His name is also symptomatic of this change, and from now on, Scandinavian names no longer appear, really. The Scandinavians that appear in the East from now on, they will be known as Varangians in the sources. And they help to set up groups like the Varangian Guard in the Byzantine Empire, whereas the Rus will now specifically refer to a Slavic fiefdom focused on Kiev, which still had Viking roots, but by now it's its own entity. Yes, we'll see when we talk about the Varangian Guard, it's actually the leaders of Kiev who send these Varangians further south because they're sort of like, oh, we don't really trust these proper Swedes anymore. They're not like us. We'll send them on to the Byzantines. So that's a great example later on to show exactly how, how far this change has come. I think this trajectory into the Vikings in the east and the Rus and their relationship to the Byzantine Empire in particular has been incredibly interesting for many reasons, but perhaps for me mainly because it is the tale of how a society changes its identity, how we go from a sort of, to use a modern term, expat outpost of uh, Swedish Vikings to a society that has merged its identity, both with local Slavic culture, keeping some of its Viking roots, to the point where it becomes a thing of its own. And I think that is so interesting because it's how societies always develop and how uh, we develop still today. It's fascinating that it is happening at this specific area of the world because we've got this great mix of the... Arabic and the Byzantine sources who love writing everything down and then later on you have the Rus and the Russian primary chronicle writing down their own history as well whereas up until now certainly when we've been looking at the Vikings back in Sweden sort of only one or two people and we're, we're so lucky that we had the life of Ansgar because if we didn't have that we'd have very very little to go on. Yeah, and we will be back shortly to look into Olga's life and Regency, as she is just too good a historical character to miss. But for now, we will head back to Scandinavia and Sweden proper for an episode or two, as we will look into the role women played in Viking life and how they influenced society. Sadly, I don't think there's going to be many trade treaties and things like that to talk about and less greek fire but much more interesting theories and aspects of life that these amazing women had to go through in a day-to-day existence in the viking time because we have this period i think certainly until 10 years ago where popular culture started changing ideas a bit but when you think of the vikings like, oh yeah big hairy men stabbing people and taking stuff 
Whereas we can see so much stuff has been written uh, in the last decade or two about how great these women actually were. Yeah, and it's not just popular culture that's changed. Academia and research has changed as well, meaning that we have, uh, there's been really amazing work done by historians and archaeologists to help us better understand women uh, during the Viking Age. So can't wait for that to uh, to come up. But until then, I hope you're all enjoying your summer, wherever you are spending it. Yep, or your winter if you're in Australia and the Good Southern point. Hemisphere. Yeah. Speaking of Australia, we now have listeners in all regions of Australia but one. Yep, the Northern Territories. We're looking for you, Northern Territory. Yeah. Come on! It's when we look at statistics, uh, we can uh, we can see for certain countries the statistic breaks down in regions. So Australia is one example where we can see where specifically the, our listeners are coming from. And uh, Northern Territory, you guys are the only ones that are grey still, meaning no listeners. So. Anyone, uh, shout out to anyone that can join us. We love all our Australian listeners. We love all our listeners, regardless of where you come from, obviously. And if you wanted to learn more about Australia and Australian history in general, there's a really cool podcast called the Australian Histories Podcast. They pick just random topics throughout Australian history. It's not chronological. So at the moment, they're doing an amazing series of episodes on this huge hydroelectric dam that they started building uh, after the war but everything to emus and all these crazy stories that you would associate with australia so do check out the australian histories podcast you can also reach us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com which someone actually has done recently we've received our first ever fan art which was amazing. Listener Ross, thank you so much, Ross. Thank you, Ross. That was brilliant. If, if we didn't have a logo already, your fan art uh, would have made an amazing logo. If you haven't seen it already, we've posted it on both Twitter and Facebook. So check out Ross's uh, fan art there. IKEA themed. IKEA themed. Very funny. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Yep, so see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, doll. Hello. Hello. Welcome to episode 15. <laughs> 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 On one occasion, Oleg had made inquiry of the wonder-working mu- musicians. <laughs>